0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead, hit that subscribe button, drop a like, leave me a comment, and let me know how I'm doing as I bring this interesting content to you each and every week. This one is a special edition to The Edric Show because my guests are Akwasi Owusu-Bempa and Tahara Rivitala, authors of the new book, Waiting to Inhale. Cannabis legalization and the fight for social justice. Akwasi is a professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto, an affiliate scientist at Canada's Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, and the director of research the, for the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty. Tahara is a partner at Highlands Venture Partners, co-founder and CEO of Commons, and a member of the board of directors of a Corporation and Last Prisoner Project. She is often referred to in the trade press as the most powerful woman in cannabis. Welcome to the show, both of you.
1: Thanks nice for having. Me.
0: Um, let me start out uh, as I was mentioning to you guys before we came on uh, an exhaustive, thoroughly researched book. You pack quite a bit of concepts and thought provoking questions and research and history into your work. Uh, but let me start at the beginning. Uh, how did you two come together? around this topic and uh, what motivated you guys to collaborate on such a great book.
2: Yeah, this is
1: a, it's a nice story. Tahira, do you want to kick things off?
2: Sure. So Akwasi and I first actually met at a conference uh, at McGill University in 2018. And the the content of the conference was predominantly regulatory, policy-driven, and I was one of maybe I don't know maybe two people who were more on the business side, uh, also presenting. And funnily enough, and I, we talk a little bit about this in the book, is that Akwasi presented the first day, I was presenting the second day, and. Uh, after hearing his remarks, I realized that I needed to like rewrite my entire presentation because we, so much of what we were saying was so similar, but coming from kind of different sides uh, and not necessarily thinking that there would be that much more overlap. So um, that started a a great friendship and um, Aquasi actually was considering, you know, writing a book and had asked me to collaborate with him on that. uh, And it kind of evolved from there. So it's been a long running uh, project of ours that we really started in 2019 and, Akwasi reminded me we saw each other for the first time in person last week uh since wow. 2019 because covid hit we, so we did most of this actually during that time frame where we were in you know remote lives um and I felt like I'd seen him so much that I didn't realize that we actually hadn't seen each other in person for that long so it's nice to be able to do this together but you know it was really bringing in the two different sides of uh, and there are many sides to the cannabis industry and legalization but from his experience as you know an Focus on education policy regulation, and and we can, Kwasi, you should talk all about your background. But then my lens as well from actually operating in the business side. And Mm -hmm. I've been in this space since 2014 and have had different experiences kind of around the table. Um, And what we kept coming to was just how the industry has made such great advancements, but at the same time, the real issues are not being addressed. And that's what we wanted to highlight in this book and bring those narratives forward, really humanize and kind of demystify what's happening. Uh, so people have a greater understanding on the impact that the war on drugs and, and what, how did the cannabis plant actually come to be illegal and now legal uh, to, to really tell the stories of those people who have been engaged in it. Hmm.
0: Um, historically, um, the so-called war on drugs, as you mentioned, uh, has always targeted black and brown people. Um, one of the interesting aspects of your book that I really enjoyed was that you highlight how this has been a, a global phenomenon, not just here in America, but it has really happened across the the, the world. Um, can you discuss a few of the common issues and themes on the war on drugs uh, and the devastating impact it's had on black and brown communities that are global in nature?
1: Yeah. So wh- why don't I hop in here? So, you know, I'm trained as a criminologist and, and that's the area that I work in now. And I really came into this first. Uh, someone who is studying, um, you know, racism and racial disparities in policing, and you can't do that without looking at the enforcement of drug laws, and particularly cannabis. It's the most popularly widely used drug in um, many countries, uh, illegal drug anyway, and uh, and we see it, you know, largely as a gateway into the criminal justice system for our most marginalized populations, uh, as you've mentioned. Um, you know, drug law enforcement generally and the war on drugs in particular has deeply racist roots. I'm here in Canada now. Our first drug laws um, were designed to target Asian populations and indigenous populations. And the very same thing was occurring in the United States at the turn of the 20th century. There were concerns around Mexican immigrants, there were concerns around Asian immigrants, there were concerns around the Black population and attaching the use of a drug to those populations and then criminalizing that drug. Um, is a very easy way to then control that population through law enforcement through criminalization and ultimately through incarceration and that's what we've seen right since the start of the war since the start of prohibition and i'll distinguish the prohibition from the war on drugs Sure, because, sure. You know, uh, drugs have been illegal now The illicit substances that we're talking about for about 100 years, opium and and, uh, cannabis and cocaine. The war on drugs was really, you know, a, a set of policies and an approach that gained traction in the 1970s following Richard Nixon's declaration of a war on drugs. But from the start, it has targeted black and brown people, racialized people. And we see those in the data and in terms of the impact that those have had. So even though rates of cannabis use are relatively similar across racial groups, we see irrespective of the jurisdiction that black and brown people are uh, hugely overrepresented in arrests, uh, in charges and convictions and ultimately behind bars. And that criminalization has an impact not only on those individuals who have a more difficult time completing their education. It's harder for them to get jobs, to secure housing, to volunteer, to travel, really just to navigate social life but impacts their families too, right? Because that's another individual who cannot contribute to their family in the way that they could, and another individual who cannot contribute to those communities in the way that they otherwise could. And so we see social deprivation in communities being fueled by this war on drugs. At the same time, the war on drugs has really kind of supercharged and expanded the criminal justice system itself. So when we talk about the militarization of policing, how's that come about? In part, because the police... Um, have these wars that they are waging. And so they're equipped to ba- to fight those wars. Um, and so we see uh, huge amounts of resources being taken out of communities and being fed towards criminal justice institutions like the police, the courts, and correctional agencies. And so people are funneled by the police into the criminal justice system. And then ultimately, as we see in the correctional data as well, hugely overrepresented uh, behind bars for cannabis-related um, crimes, as well as uh, other drug offenses, of course. But this, then again, has even more of an impact because when you're incarcerated, you know, you're removed from your families, mm-hmm. It it severs ties between families and and friends, and, and it's really difficult to reintegrate back into society. Um, one of the aspects of that you guys write about
0: extensively uh, regarding criminal convictions um, are is the concept of expungement. And the need for expungement of criminal records for people who uh, aren't really, you know, in there for violent crimes. Um, can you talk about the concept or what expungement is, uh, and why it's so important for the fight for social justice?
1: Yeah. Why don't I kick off expungement and then you can talk about some of the other solutions. So we, we lay out really three solutions in the book um, to deal with the harms of prohibition that I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, the first of those is expungement. So as we move towards and, and and ultimately adopt legalization, we believe, as do many others, that it's you know only fair and, and really sensible that the criminal records people have for things and activities that are no longer illegal are erased, are, are are cleared by the government, and there's a process for them to do that. And, um, the, you know, the reason for this is, of course, it, it deals with the problems that people with criminal records have that I've spoken about before. Uh, there are some novel ways to do this. You know, we've seen in uh, first piloted in San Francisco and then adopted in other jurisdictions. Um, uh, governments partnering, for example, with Code for America, uh, who's developed a tool called Clear My Record. It's a... Um, AI tool that uh, jurisdictions can let loose on their criminal records that can itself identify cannabis-related crimes, you know, those convictions for things that are no longer illegal, and file the uh, those um, files with the courts uh, so that those records can ultimately be cleared. And so this is, you know, providing individuals with a, a second chance, really, and uh, and erasing, uh, as we uh, titled that chapter in the book, erasing the past.
2: And, and one thing to add there, so uh, many people have heard that President Biden in October of 2022 announced these pardons that affected people who are convicted of cannabis possession at the federal level. Uh, That really only impacted about 6,500 people. And that's not saying that that's a bad number, but there are still probably about 40,000 people at best estimates, which the information is also a little bit patchy. But at least we would say about 40,000 people who are still impacted. And those are people who are really at the state level. So actually most convictions happen at the state level in the US, not at the federal level, which is why people thought that that was a wide pardon and that you know all of these people are going to be released, but that's actually not the case. And so it's, it's important for people to understand the levels that a lot of these um, charges happen, um, and that it's really a calling on the governors of those states to produce similar uh and similar pardons regarding state cannabis offenses versus those federal ones um you know there are about uh, additional you know 3,000 people that are convicted at the at higher level cannabis crimes at the federal level so large trafficking you know some violence uh, things along those lines but at the state level again you know groups are working to get people out of prison like the last prisoner project uh, on uh, an organization that I'm on the board on because those, as Zekwasi is saying, it's it's a process to get these expungements and pardons done. And so it kind of takes this hands-on approach. And every state is actually different in how things are managed. And so it has to be done. Uh, you know, We're hoping for more resources like these AI programs to be able to allow for a much more fell swoop impact than having to go in one by one.
1: And to add another layer to that, sure. you know, that 3,000 people are, are, are folks that are are currently serving sentences um, at, at, the, at the state level that could be cleared. Uh, when we look at kind of historically, we start to get into not only perhaps the tens of thousands, but the hundreds of thousands. So when you look across the country and across time, if we were to have federal legalization now and and the states were to adopt expungement measures similar to that, that the federal government has, we would get into even greater numbers. And so it expands, you know, depending on exactly what it is that we're looking at.
0: Uh, and that would have such an impact, just uh, economically, people be able to come out and and get gainful employment and be with their families, and so, um, it it leads me kind of to my next question, which is just the the social injustice of this, um, I guess plague, if you will, in the criminal justice system, my words, um. But you guys write about social equity initiatives and and trying to rectify that. So, can you guys uh, talk to me about social equity initiatives and how vital they are to the campaign for legalization?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to to start Mm -hmm. off there. One element that Akwasi and I continuously talk about is that as legalization continues and as has happened kind of in the past couple of years, one important element is that social equity, whatever that may be, and it encompasses a whole range of initiatives, right? Like what does that mean to different people? But the reality is, is that it has to be part of the DNA of whatever regulation and policy that we're rolling out because trying to implement something later quite frankly, it just doesn't happen, but it's also much more challenging to actually enact those types of measures. So we outline a couple of different states in the US that have actually tried to do various social equity problems, uh, programs. And in addition to that, we, we highlight towards the end that New York at that time was pending and now we're seeing it actually play out. And unfortunately, nothing is a gold standard quite yet. There's a lot that has to be established, and it quite quite frankly ends up in delays and lawsuits, and that's what we've been seeing. All hope is not lost because measures, there's faster iteration that is happening to correct uh, the inaccuracies of that program. But what social equ- equity measures really allow to do is to provide people who have been impacted by the war on drugs, whose communities and, and family members have been impacted, to step to the front of the line in some way, shape, or form, be it you're at the top of the list for getting a license in one of the categories, be it retail, cultivation, along those lines, um, You know, to be able to participate in different ways. The challenge has become that not only moving someone to the front of the line necessarily has the impact that you want, because at the end of the day, they still have to run a business. And the right. resources that come with needing to run a business, financial, operational, uh, regulatory compliance, policy, Those are still things that are really limited to certain groups of people and namely people who have the funding or the connections to be able to do that, uh, which continues to be limited into a smaller population that we see in other industries as well. So it just unfortunately has replicated itself in the cannabis industry, but we still believe that these measures are absolutely necessary in order to get those people engaged. And one of the other elements is just getting more diversity in leadership, not just people who are you know throughout the, the ranks in organizations, but leadership as well, because that is what is going to have the longer-term impact on who's in the industry, who's participating, whose voices are being heard, and whose communities are actually being impacted.
0: Uh, as a follow-up, you also write that federal leg- legalization uh, here in the United States uh, has the potential to be possibly detrimental to some of the social equity programs. So can you discuss some of the reasons why that might happen?
2: So I'll jump in a little bit there. So with, with federal legalization, it, on one side, it opens the doors. It allows for safer banking, you know, transactions that can go across state lines. But with that, too, the, the policies that are put in place to allow for some people to, to advance with social equity, to have more control over their region or have their retail environments, it becomes a bigger challenge at times when you have the large organizations coming in who maybe Couldn't previously participate. There are still hundreds of organizations who won't touch cannabis because of that federal illegality. Maybe multinational organizations, um, investment firms that won't necessarily engage. Actually, most banks uh, won't still bank cannabis or even CBD, uh, even though CBD is legal from hemp derived, you know, 2018 farm bill. But because of that, there's still people who are outside of the industry allowing for others to grow and proliferate in a way that maybe they wouldn't have had the opportunity to. So there are those things to consider on everybody wants federal legality, but at the same time, we have to consider how do you safeguard the steps that have been taken with social equity? And how do we ensure that those people aren't completely wiped out when you have billion dollar organizations coming in to compete with them.
0: Um, You highlight the stories of several people throughout the history of the the legalization campaign uh, and some people even current today. One of the people I wanted to uh, ask you guys to talk about is um, the young lady named Wanda James. Um, Why is Wanda James such an important figure uh, in the legalization process? And uh, why did you guys decide to write about her in the book?
1: Well I was gonna I think I passed this to you because I think you got much closer connection than I do as well. So
2: well, you know, Wanda's interesting because she comes from she has a great educational background, you know, military family, um, and is a black woman who mm-hmm. also has experienced some of you know, the the pushback and not only as someone who's black, but somebody who's a woman. Um and then also over time learned that she has a brother who was actually incarcerated for cannabis and the challenges that mm-hmm. he faced. Uh, She's been a leading voice in the industry for longer than many people have even been in the quote-unquote industry, uh, and was the first woman, Black woman, to have a cannabis dispensary that is still thriving to this day, and she's really become a voice for the industry, but one of her biggest goals has always been to get other people involved make sure that we're raising the bar to allow everybody into the industry but particularly people of color and women um so she's someone who's just that that person that has really led the charge took a lot of risks early on her and her husband have been doing this for quite some time but to really be she's she's someone who is an example of a first uh, who Hmm. continues to advance and move and and quite frankly bring people along with her which we can't say that that many people are doing. We also talk about Al Harrington in the book, who is a former NBA player who's similarly doing something like that. He wants to bring other people along. And it's not just about them. It's about the broader community that can have an impact because they come from the areas where they understand how communities have been destroyed. They've seen it in their own lives and their families, and they want to create change. And that's actually what they're doing.
0: Um, you mentioned banking and the importance of being able to take out a business loan to get into this business, which federally you cannot do at this particular time. Um, can you speak to where federal legalization is here in the United States right now, given the current political environment? I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of momentum. The Democrats had the House, the Senate and the presidency, and people were thinking that maybe there was an opportunity to to loosen up some of the federal uh, laws around legalization. That that kind of didn't happen. So where are we now, uh, especially with the interesting political environment we have here in the United States right now?
2: So we are, you know, unfortunately, I would say we're kind of at the same place we were every year around this time. Um, there have been uh, different measures put in place that have been voted down. You know, safe banking is something that we've uh, its come around the table so many times, um, and that really is Focused on allowing for measures to allow banks to participate for people to have bank accounts. You know, you mentioned Edric loans. The average cannabis business can't get a loan from. You right. can't get a small business loan. You can't get larger loans. And really, the only organizations that have loans in the industry um, are very large organizations that have you know billions of dollars behind them. But also those who come from now they've been established. Uh, loan funds within cannabis that exclusively focus on that. So there's still you know, the average uh, point of sale processing, banking, we can't use credit cards, all of that stuff that a, a small business that's selling widgets could easily have access to. Uh, we don't have access to those. At the federal level, the conversation kind of, has kind of gone in circles, whereas we we understand now that this is much more of a bipartisan issue than we previously had thought. It wasn't We thought that, you know, only Democrats support this. There are actually a lot of Republicans who are in favor for a range of reasons, but there hasn't been a a real measure to remove some of the challenges like tax law. 280E is something that is at the the federal tax, um, which actually is if you're an illegal business, you still have to pay taxes, but your tax rate is substantially larger than the average business. And that really makes it challenging for businesses to operate. So we don't necessarily, and I say we, I don't necessarily anticipate federal legalization happening in the next couple of years, certainly not under the Biden administration. We'll see what happens with whatever the next administration is, but it doesn't seem to be, you know, the priority. Unfortunately, there there are a lot of other things that are re- becoming priority, but with that, the hope is that we can get some of the other bills passed that allow for ease in and day-to-day business operations that allow businesses to thrive.
0: Uh, and let me ask you, Akwasi, so you you write about your personal story. You you really um go into some of the things that you've gone through growing up and some of the things you were exposed to and how that, you know, kind of shaped how you view things now. So talk to me a little bit about um, you know, Canada and 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 the way you grew up and maybe some of the things you've learned now that uh you you want to share with folks even more.
1: Yeah, thank you. So um, as as I note in the book, I was actually born in the United Kingdom, uh, moved to Canada when I was quite young and um... My neighbor, when I moved to Canada, was a retired cop, and he kind of, you know, glorified the job. And I, you know, watched Beverly Hills Cop too many times, and so I went from this place where the police walk around the streets and largely walk wearing funny hats and don't have sidearms to uh, having this guy that would, you know, tell me all these stories about the work he'd d- had done. So I went through, you know, many of my formative years wanting to be a cop, um, even though I'd seen in, in in the cities that I lived in, in England, you know, some pretty serious problems related to crack and, and heroin, which were. Um, You know, kind of spiking in the in the early 1990s and where I grew up in Ontario, um, lots of cannabis grow ups around me, but I always had this interest in law enforcement, uh, but saw people around me that were engaging in drug use and and certainly in drug trafficking and, you know, we've got plenty of movies and, and TV shows around these things they are also very interesting. Um, I went away to university, wanted to be a, a cop, as I've said, and, and realized very quickly that, you know, the kind of rosy picture that I had of policing was uh, exactly that. It was rosy, the things that my father had been telling me that, you know, some of the interactions that I'd had with the police that weren't uh, overly positive uh, kind of pushed me in a different direction. And racial profiling really emerged as a, a social phenomenon here in Canada when I was studying Um to Become a cop. And so I really changed my focus and uh and wanted to study injustice in our justice system. And as I said, kind of off the top, you can't do that without looking at our drug laws. And I got, you know, just like um really uh engrossed in, in the study of of you know, how drugs became illegal and the impact that those have had. Uh and then I I had the fortune to go to Indiana University uh for my first academic position, and I met a young man who'd spent uh much of his uh late teen years and early 20s in California, actually in and out of um uh, correctional institutions for uh, trafficking uh, cannabis. And he was like, look, um, I know Canada's going to legalize. We've got legalization here. Uh, you really need to look at these social equity initiatives that are taking place. And so I started, you know, kind of really investigating those. And so I got to see from my criminological background, just the devastation that the war on drugs has caused and, and, and really this whole infrastructure around the criminal justice system that has grown as a result of our drug laws. As well as I could see the huge potential that legalization could had to, re- to could have to remedy uh, some of those problems, and and we've talked about some of these already. Of course, the clearing of criminal records, inclusion inclusion in the legal industry. But one of the other big ones, and where I see a lot of potential, is actually reinvestment of some of the revenues from uh, legal cannabis back into those communities most harmed. So as I've said, largely racialized, largely. Kind of poor communities have been targeted for drug law enforcement. There have been uh, billions poured into enforcing those laws, money taken out of those communities, either from deinvestment from social services or as a result of those people, you know, again, not being able to engage in employment and other things in the way that they could. Now, when we look at the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that are coming in in different jurisdictions from legal cannabis sales, we can see that, you know, if a portion of those sales... Five, 10, 15, 20% are taken and put into uh, funds as they are in Illinois, for example. They can then be used and directed to uh, organizations and groups who are doing the very work that will repair the harms that we've identified that have been caused by the war on drugs. So, uh, programming around education um, for, for uh, youth in these areas, job skills and employment programs, health programs. Uh, crime prevention and, and reintegration programs. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that the war on drugs was hugely disastrous in terms of the impact that it's had on communities. It was hugely beneficial if you're a police agency, a private prison, or a politician who's, who's campaigned on these promises. Um, but despite all the devastation, there is a lot of hope and a lot of promise that legalization brings with it. Uh, as Tahir has noted, um, you know those hopes and those promises only come if if it's done correctly, and and you know that's part of why we lay out this roadmap in the book of how that might happen.
0: Hmm. Uh, we have a couple of minutes left, and I want to ask you now. If there's, there's, it's it's challenging to stay on top of all everything that's going on in the legalization movement, uh, especially here in the United States. Where do you guys go? I mean, you've done this exhaustive uh, research for the book, but where do you guys get your information if 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 someone wanted to stay current and not rely, quote unquote, on Yahoo News and this and that, where do you guys get information and current information about you know where the legalization movement is, and how do you stay on top of it?
1: It's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm an academic, so i I often go to academic sources which are n- notoriously delayed. but um, also social media, of course, following kind of the major uh, cannabis and and drug reform organizations and media outlets. So like Leafly, Benzinga, uh, Business of Cannabis and things like that. Uh, There are a number of uh people uh jeff burke for example is a reporter who's covered this beat for a long time a journalist and uh and so you know they're often sharing updates on their twitter and, and other social media pr- platforms so you know i focus on the academic and 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 kind of gray literature as we call it the government reports for uh kind of what's happening big picture but in terms of the specifics and the up-to-date for me it's really uh social media and, and these kind of key outlets to hear
2: yeah similar to me I um for me I attend a lot of the industry conferences as well where you can hear things that are not necessarily being reported on today but things that are in process both at the business level the uh you know regulatory policy level as well it's a good mix so try to stay current uh in addition to the content that you can actually read but by actually attending and talking to people who are in the space, because some of that stuff, as Akwasi said, it takes a bit longer for that to hit news pages, and so the, the dialogue is important. And, and organizations like Last Prisoner Project, the ACLU, the ones who are really embedded in this type of work, have been great resources as well. And they try to they try to stay current so people can understand what what trends are happening and what they're seeing, even though research often takes a lot longer. <laughs>
1: Uh, well again, i uh, oh go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say the drug policy alliance normal.
2: I, I I'd like to say just one more thing because I think sure. we're
1: gonna wrap up here, and that's um, you know, one of the things we end on in the book is that um, you know, cannabis legalization, we've got it federally here where I am in Canada. It's taken hold, obviously, in many American states, and we're seeing it around the world. But it's, you know, we think really just the first step in terms of broader drug law reform. And, you know, we've seen some nods to this in the United States already with the Biden administration saying it expects MDMA to be approved for the treatment of of certain mental illness. And so we lay out this roadmap for cannabis and and we want to see this happen with respect to cannabis legalization. But we also think that these roadmaps that we've laid out should also inform the legalization of other drugs, which, you know, we believe is, is really inevitable. Well said.
0: Um, Well, again, I want to thank you guys for the book. It's thoroughly researched. It's a great read. Uh, I encourage folks to go out because it does give you different perspectives. And I say, for me, my biggest takeaway was just the global nature of this this problem or this situation, which, you know, we tend to be a little myopic here in the United States. We tend to focus only on what's in front of us. But there's a whole uh, large world out there where people are struggling with some of the same issues. So I want to thank you guys and congratulate you on the work. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You're very welcome. Uh, if people want more information about the two of you or the book, uh, where can they go?
2: Uh, so we're both on social media, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Tahira Ram and Aquasi is Aobempa on most platforms. Um, and then also the, the the book, which links out to a lot of places, is uh, MIT Press uh, website where you can find a lot of information about the book on there. Yeah,
1: books also on Amazon and, uh, and, Barnes, know, and
2: Noble Barnes
1: and, and Noble. Yeah. Your- your local retail outlet as well, hopefully soon too.
0: And I'm assuming it's printed on hemp paper. I'm just kidding.
2: Don't smoke
0: (laughs) it. Someday, someday. But again, I do want to thank you guys for for coming on the Edric Show and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you thank you you very much. This has been another edition of the Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. I do want to thank you for tuning in. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all your favorite online streaming platforms as I bring you this content each and every week. I want to thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you on the next episode.